Isaiah 36 to 39, uh, the message is entitled, and it really is a series, The Trustworthiness of God. And I think all of us could say that one of the greatest joys and even privileges, and we can add as well, mysteries, is the experience of people offering righteous prayers, and they have some effect on eternal matters. And we have the opportunity to be a people who trust God, and in trusting God, we seek him, we seek after him, and we ask him at times to change the circumstances of our lives, or even those moments when we don't ask him to change the circumstances of our lives, we simply trust him in the midst of circumstances because we realize that these circumstances are what's best for our life. And I think we would all agree there have been times in your life when you have asked God, change these circumstances because it was difficult, it was hard, it was trying, and maybe it seemed to be even overwhelming, but then you realize that, no, this is not the best prayer. God is allowing this in my life, and I receive it, I accept it, and I trust God in the midst of it. And there are other occasions we ask for God to intervene in our lives to change those circumstances, and the Lord grants us that. We're going to see such a case even in this passage, how at times God has made a pronouncement even in the life of Hezekiah, uh, be ready in your house, you're about to die, and Hezekiah seeks the Lord, and he trusts God to intervene in his life, and God extends his life even 15 years. We see a people, uh, the people of Israel, specifically Judah, they have not trusted the Lord. They have trusted alliances that perhaps should protect them. And instead of trusting Yahweh, the superior God of all the universe, they trust in themselves. But then, because of God's faithfulness to his own name and God's faithfulness to his own glory, he intervenes because he has declared that he would protect his city. He has declared that he would protect his name, and God intervenes and protects the people of God. God is, in fact, a trustworthy God. And I've entitled this series just that because when we look through these four chapters, we'll notice that the the leading role in this passage, this, this great section of Scripture, is Yahweh. Yahweh, the God who is to be feared, a God who is to be honored, And for those who do not honor him, they will face the consequences even of his wrath, which we will see as we'll let the context unfold, the nations will face the wrath of God. But yet, those that turn to him, even some of these wicked nations, which you will see as well, even some of these wicked nations, if they would just turn to the living God, they can be a part of the people of God, and they can one day come and worship before the living God in Zion, if you will. But yet this God who at times is this great and powerful and awesome God who at times is a God of wrath is also a God of compassion and patience to those who would trust him. And I think we're all thankful for the compassion and patience of God, are we not? God, thank you that you are a patient God. Where would I be without your patience? Thank you that you're a God that is compassionate because at times I have not trusted you as I should. Thank you. See, Hezekiah, Shennacherib, um, the Rabshakeh, the messengers, and Isaiah, and all other people that are involved in this episode are all in supporting roles. 
That's why it is entitled the trustworthiness of God, not the great um, courage of Hezekiah, not even the great prophecy of Isaiah, not even the resolve of the resolve of those who were on the wall, not even the might uh, of Assyria. No, not at all. It is the trustworthiness of God. And if you were to walk away with anything this week and the next week and the week after that, and then when we come back again, I want you to walk away saying, I can trust God. Do you agree with that this morning? Absolutely. And so with each lesson, I'm hoping that somehow that you will have an enlarged view of God. And that enlarged view of God would then inform your heart and your emotions in those moments when you don't feel like God is that large. And maybe you aren't thinking that God is that large. And maybe you're even thinking, oh, can I trust him? And if we have a proper view of God, an enlarged view of God, a biblical view of God, it will inform our thinking, it will inform our mind. And once the mind is informed, it will in fact inform and cause emotions to submit. It all begins with the thinking. And this is often where people find themselves in trouble, and I've seen it over the years, because they're waiting for their emotions to change, and they've convinced themselves, if I only felt better, then I would do right. And if only felt better, then I would think properly. No, if you think properly, then emotions will follow. And at times what we've done, we tried to put, um, it's like putting the caboose before um, the engine. And it's not. Uh, The engine that pulls that train of our will and of our faith and of our life is a thinking about God. And then once we have a proper thinking about God, it can pull those cargo um, along, if you will. But if we don't do that, we're, we're trying to push this train with our own might. We're trying to push it with our own emotions. Our emotions waver. Is there anyone in this room today whose emotions waver? Ah, ah, I think we're at about 100%, are we not? And if we're not at 100%, if you're holding off, uh, Pastor Bill will talk to you after the service (laughs) because you need counseling. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, everyone wavers. And so there may be times when you may say to yourself, you thought that, well, God, are you aware of our needs or my needs? And are you hearing me? Do you even know the circumstances I'm faced with? Maybe sometimes a person may wonder about God's provision. Will it come through in time? Maybe you're convinced that God is a God that will provide, but you're wondering, it seems like, that is, it seems like I need it right now. Not a month from now or a year from now or several years from now. I need it in this exact moment. And maybe there are times when you've even doubted God's care for your soul. And we say to ourselves, is that really possible? Do Christians at times uh, doubt God's care for their soul? Do they at times wonder whether or not God's provision will come through on time? Do they really wonder whether or not God is aware of their needs? They do. And this is why Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, would do what? Communicate, be anxious for nothing. 
No, your heavenly father is aware of your needs. Uh, He is aware just like he cares for the lilies and just like he realizes these little birds that are skipping on the ground. And just like he knows every hair that is in your head, your heavenly father is aware of every circumstance and, and every difficulty and every need that you have. Do you agree with that today? Yes, absolutely. And what we have to do is continually convince ourselves of that and remind ourselves of it because sometimes the memory fails us, does it not? And we see that in Scripture. And that's why in Scripture you see so often God is saying to his people, remember, 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 remember. And he would even take them all the way back to the Exodus. Remember when I delivered you. Remember the provision for you because the tendency is to forget. Now, there are times I think in all of our lives there are things that we would wish that we could forget. Are there not? There are things I wish I could forget. And then we wrestle with the opposite of it. There are things that we surely want to remember and to hold fast. And when I say remember, I'm not just talking about just in a simply cognitive sense. That is, okay, I remember the data. I mean, remember it in the sense that, yes, I'll hold fast to it. It is mine. I'll hold fast to the promises of God. And there may be times even in your life you think the circumstances of life are overwhelming. They were overwhelming for Judah. This great Assyrian army, the greatest power in the known world at this time, they have gone through Judah and Samaria and they've laid siege to all the cities. And now they're coming from even Lachish, which is only about 25 to 30 miles away. And now... They're thinking, how can we possibly survive? And they know the circumstances of all the other nations that have fallen. The uprisings that have come from Babylon, now they're squashed. Now all the other cities along the way, all the other nations along the way have been defeated. And one wonders, and they're wondering, can we trust God now? It is overwhelming. And that's what Isaiah has been trying to communicate to them along the way that you can trust God, Yahweh. He is unlike the gods of the nations. And so in these lessons, how many um, lessons uh, will be in this series, I pray that your soul will be encouraged, that you'll increase your faith. And maybe when you find yourself facing multicolored difficulties in life, you can develop and you will fall back on a vital trust in the living God. Be convinced that you can trust him. So in this time that we have this morning, what I want to do is for us to understand the importance of Isaiah 36 to 39 in Isaiah, a book that has had a tremendous effect on the church and even in society over the years. We're going to use our time to identify some key words and phrases and, and even theological markers that you'll find in Isaiah 36 to 39 And I think this is one of the richest sections, one of the uh, most blessed narratives in all of Scripture. And this is going to set us up for an exposition of Isaiah 36 to 39. And now I'm I'm going to uh, look at it this morning from, let me give you six sort of divisions, if you will, six divisions and this passage and what we can expect to learn from it as we move ahead. But before I give you that first, I want us to build some momentum, if you will, towards 
chapter 36. And what is happening? If you were to go back to chapters um, 7 through 12, you see that God has provided a promise, that God is capable of providing. God is capable of delivering. So there's a question, though. Is God capable of providing for his people? Can he defend his people? And we see that argument through chapter 7 through 12. And then we go to chapters 13 to 35, and then the points are made consistently that God is, in fact, capable of delivering his people. He can fulfill his promise. And then in chapters 13 to 35, it breaks into some parts as well. Because then in chapters 13 to 23, you'll find that there are these oracles against the nations. You have sinned against me. You have been proud and haughty, and you have trusted in yourself. I will, in fact, fight against you. And then in chapters 24 to 27, we see here so clearly that not only is the history of Israel under the umbrella of God, but in chapters 24 to 27, God is saying through the prophet Isaiah that all of history is under the umbrella of God. He controls every event in life. So Philistia, Tyre, Egypt, Assyria, all the nations, you fall under my sovereign control of history. So then we ask ourselves a question, if God is controlling every uh, moment in history, he must be by default controlling my own then I can trust him. I am a part of this sovereign unfolding of history, and therefore I must trust him as well. And so then in chapters 28 to 33, you see the examples of the folly of the nations, and it's pronounced there. Look at the folly of the nations, thinking that they can um, fight against the Lord. Look at the folly of the nations, thinking that somehow their gods are equal to the living God. They are not. And And then close to our chapter is chapters 34 and 35 is a summary. And it's a summary of all these statements. Essentially, we can say, really beginning all the way to chapter 1 to 35, these pronouncements that God is the God of all the nations. The nations will be judged to reject him. And then in 34 and 35, what you see here, two simple things. Chapter 34, if you reject God and do not trust God, then the land will be a desert. And then he says in chapter 35, but yet if you trust God, then the land will be a garden. I can turn the garden into a desert and I can turn the desert into a garden. Trust me. And this is what he's saying. So now we have chapters 36 to 39. So what's happening now? Why why is this here? And what we can also say is this, Chapters 31 to 39, there is one nation that stands out among the rest, and it is the nation Assyria. There is this Assyrian threat. And then what we're going to notice is in chapter 40 and beyond, there's going to be the Babylonian threat. So 36 to 39 is a bridge between the two. Assyria was a threat, but now the Lord says, I'm a faithful God. I defeat them, and we're going to see how he will defeat them. But yet there's another threat, which is Babylon. 
and we're going to see the relationship of this passage to now Babylon being introduced as a people who will, in fact, do what? Deport the people of God to Babylon. The northern kingdom had been deported to uh, Assyria, and now uh, the southern kingdom will be exiled to Babylon. And so in between the two, 36 and 39, if you will, is this link between the two. And he says, there was a threat for all these chapters of Syria. I will fight for you. And he does it. Now they're away, but now Hezekiah, as we'll learn later on, by his indiscretion, has shown that the emissaries from Babylon, all that he owns, and now there's a pronouncement that's going to be made, your people will be carried away. So the Babylonian threat is there. But in the end, whether it be Assyria or Babylon or any other nation, God is still in control. Amen? He is. So let me give you, we're going to walk through this passage, and I want you to look at some of the key ideas and phrases and even theological concepts that we'll develop as we spend whatever amount of weeks walking through this passage. And there's six that I want you to sort of hang your hats on, if you will. And the first is this. This is a passage of contrast. It's a passage of contrast. And let me give you five contrasts that you'll see. And we're going to walk through some of these texts together. Number one, there's a contrast of kings, a contrast of kings. Look with me, look with me to Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah 7, verse 4. And it says, of course, this is in the days of Ahaz. And it says, that is Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And it says, and say to them, take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs with smoldering firebrands and on account of the fierce anger of Razan and Aram of the son of Remaliah. And it says, what's interesting here, Isaiah makes his pronouncement, there's a threat. And what is this threat? There's a threat that the northern kingdom and also Aram is going to come and fight against you, but what you must do is instead trust the Lord. And I want you to also note what's interesting too is even where he would make this pronouncement is in verse 3 is at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. Just, just note that for a moment. We're going to come back to that later on. And so Isaiah essentially says here, you must trust the Lord. But Ahaz doesn't. And you know what Ahaz does instead? He says, I can't fight against them. They're too powerful for me. And he establishes an alliance with the Assyrians. The Assyrians will come and help us. But then notice the contrast in Kings. Look at chapter 37. In chapter 37, Hezekiah is faced with the threat now, ironically, which we'll note as well, ironically, of the Assyrians... And it says in Isaiah 37, it says, Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, He calls out to the great God, who is the God who made heaven and earth. He says, Incline, hear, open, see, and listen to the words of Sennacherib. 
who sent them to reproach the living God. And then he calls out, verse 20, deliver us that all the nations will know that you are the Lord your God. So here's a contrast of kings. One king says, here is a threat. What I'm going to do is create an alliance with another nation, and eventually that other nation would turn its back on them. And now here is a threat that comes again from this nation. And what does Hezekiah do? He seeks the Lord. He trusts God. But it's also a contrast of power, a contrast of power. Look at Isaiah 36, Isaiah 36, verse 9. So the representative from Shennacherib comes, and he says in verse 6, Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then in verse 9, notice what it says. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's? servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. So in one sense, there is a similarity between Hezekiah and Ahaz because Hezekiah didn't absolutely trust in the Lord. He was initially trusting in the Egyptians. The Egyptians would help us fight against the Assyrians, but he says uh, their power is very limited. And it was. And then in verse 15, notice as well, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, surely the Lord will deliver us. So it says the Egyptians have no power. And what the Rabshakeh is saying, even the Lord has no power. Don't trust in Egypt and don't even trust in the Lord. Notice chapter 37 in this contrast in power. But there is a contrast that is infinite in measurement here in 37, 36. What does it tell us? There, then the angel of the Lord went out and struck how many of the Assyrian soldiers? 185,000. And we'll come back to that when we get to that point and unfold the magnitude of that statement. So what he is essentially saying here, no, there's limited power in the Egyptians. There's limited power in the Assyrians. If you would just trust me, I will fight your battles which is what we also see in chapter 40. And just getting outside of our passage for a moment, look at Isaiah chapter 40. It says, why is this true? Why is there a contrast in power? Because in verse 15, the nations are like a drop from a what? And regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. They don't even move the scales whatsoever. And think about the nations as a drop in the bucket. Uh, in one sense, it's saying it's immeasurable. So the Assyrians, granted, they are the most powerful nation at that time, but they're nothing in comparison to me. But it's also this. It's a contrast of messiahs. Look at um, Isaiah 7. Go with me to Isaiah 7. Now, remember, Isaiah is trying to encourage Ahaz to trust the Lord and he says, don't fear the threat that is coming to you. Don't make some alliance with the Assyrians or any other nation or any other person. Yahweh will fight your battles. And then he says, the sign is going to be given, an ultimate sign. Then in verse um, 14, it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son. And, sh and they will call his name Emmanuel. He said, what do you mean by contrast 
of Messiah's. Because some would have thought, well, the fulfillment of Isaiah 14 was actually in Hezekiah. He's going to be our great deliverer. But yet, he failed. And then what we will note is in Isaiah, really, 40 through 66, in a more concentrated way, one might say, in especially in the servant songs, if we look at 50 um, to 55, there's a sense there's an ultimate Messiah that's coming. But it's also, this is a contrast of gods. Go back with me to Isaiah 36, a contrast of gods. Isaiah 36, and then 19, I'm sorry, 18, 36, 18. It says, beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you. This is still the representative of Assyria, the commander speaking, saying, the Lord will deliver us. And notice here, has any one of the gods of the nation delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? And then in verse 19, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Saravim? And when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their land from my hand? And he's essentially saying, your God, Yahweh, is no different than the gods of the land. But of course he is, and we know the end of the story. But nonetheless, we need to consider it anyway. Look at Isaiah 37. Here is it, the contrast. Yes, these gods, they're not reliable because they're not truly God, but we serve the one who truly is. Isaiah 37, 19. And it says, as Isaiah is crying out to the Lord for his intervention in the temple, and it says, truly, verse 18 Oh, Lord, the king of Assyria has devastated all the countries in their land. So it's a fact. In fact, they are a great nation. In fact, they have devastated peoples. And in verse 19, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. So here's another contrast, a contrast of gods. Here's the fifth contrast a contrast in places of worship. Look at Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37, in places of worship. So, verse 37, chapter 37, there is one, and when Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. He goes into the house of the Lord, and we later on see this great prayer that is both... um, sober and heartfelt, but yet exalting the living God. He goes to the house of the Lord, but there's a great contrast here because we see, obviously in verse 14, he goes to the house of the Lord. He spreads the letter before the Lord and he prays. But then if we go to verse 38, here's the contrast there in verse 38, what happens? Now, Shennacherib is defeated. He goes back to his house. He goes to the house of Nishrach, his God. And what happens? Two of his sons come in and they kill him with the sword. So we see a contrast. One, we go to the house of the Lord and there's victory. The other, he goes to the house of his Lord and there's death and defeat. Here's a second sort of division, if you will. This is a passage of irony a passage of irony. Now, I mentioned earlier from chapter 7, as Isaiah wants 
Ahaz to trust in the Lord. And actually in verse four is a pronouncement, but in verse three is really where we see the irony because he makes his pronouncement at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. So what's the irony? Go into chapter 36. Here's the irony, and it shows you even the exact detail of God and how he's ordering all of providence, if you will, in verse 2 of chapter 36. So we know verse 1, Shanachra comes against the fortified cities of Judah and sees them. Now he's approaching Jerusalem, and the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood, where did he stand? By the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. So there's irony here, isn't it? Because now this same place where Isaiah stood and says, trust the Lord. But instead of trusting the Lord, what did Ahaz do? I need an alliance. And then I need an alliance. And maybe the Assyrians, I'll have an alliance with them and I'll submit myself to them and I'll pay monies to them, they will fight for me. And now, where is the Assyrian commander actually standing at the same place where earlier Isaiah said, trust God? There's a bit of irony there. Had you trusted the Lord, the rapture would not even be here. But now he's standing in the very place where your father was told to trust God, And now he's making a pronouncement that says, don't rely on God. Here's a third consideration. This is a passage of promise and prophecy fulfilled. And really might say quickly, in chapters 31 to 35, I've already told you how these chapters are leading up to the end of the Assyrian era And it's a statement that says now God is going to fulfill what he said, and particularly with the Assyrians. He is going to fight your battle. It's also the idea of revenge. Look at chapter 37. Chapter 37, verse 6. And it says here, Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus saith the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard in which the servants of the king of Assyria has blasphemed me. And then in verse 29, there is revenge that takes place, judgment that comes, because notice God speaking because of your raging, that is God speaking to the king of Assyria, you're raging against me, and because of your arrogance that come up to my ears, Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back the way which you have come. That's pretty vivid, isn't it? Essentially, God says, I will judge you. You have spoken against me, so God exacts his righteous revenge. But there's also this sense of punishment. Um, Punishment. There's peace, 39, 39 verse 8. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord, which is spoken is good. Which word had he spoken? The Babylonians are going to come and they're going to send your people away in exile and they're going to take away all your goods. For he thought, for there will be peace and truth in my days. 
Now, we need to understand that statement when we come, because initially you say, well, that's a very interesting statement for a leader. Essentially, what you're saying, I won't have to deal with the pain that's going to be experienced. Ah, it works out for me. Sort of sounds like the human heart, doesn't it? It's like when we think about today, what is one of the things that at least I know I think about uh, with my kids and one day maybe grandkids and maybe one day live long enough if I keep running and eat right and the Lord is on my side, amen? (laughs) Amen, because we're talking about the trustworthiness of God that see great grandkids. But don't you sometimes think, what will the world be like for them? Don't you think that? You just say to yourself, what is it going to be like for my kids? What is it going to be like for my grandkids? What is it going to be like for them? So you think about that. There's a certain degree of sadness that you have realizing, you know what? When it comes to great grandkids, I most likely won't be around. I'm hoping I'm around for the others. But who knows what the Lord's plan is? But you say to yourself, oh, my, what will it be like? Just yesterday, I was with a couple of high school friends, and we were, in the, we were talking with one another and how we grew up and the things that we learned. And we said, life is so different now. It really is. And he told me how he said, you remember how we would go playing and we could go, because no one had cell phones. Your parents couldn't text you and say, hey, where are you? <laughs> I mean, who had a cell Cell phones, they weren't invented then. I was totally dating myself, right? I don't know, maybe some secret CIA agents had them back then. But it wasn't in the populace, right? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? So you didn't have it. So you said, hey, mom, dad, I'm going to the park. When are you going to be back? Six o'clock. And you just came back at six o'clock. Mom, dad, we're going to go on a bike ride, and we're going to go here. And then we may go to Winter Park, and we might go to Hankins Park, and we're talking about that. And that's simply what you did. And maybe if you weren't back in time, they'd have to get in the car, and they come looking for you. And there were a couple of times, hilarious, when somebody you knew they were in trouble because their parents showed up, and they were like, that's all they did. You're like, oh, you're in trouble. You should have been back by now. You knew they were in trouble, but that's what you had to do, right? There was no app that says, okay, I see where they are right now, and you're following the kids. Mm. <laughs> Okay. All right. I saw some of you are like, oh. All right. I won't say any more on that. The world is different. And we're talking about, yeah, I remember you come home and your door would be open in your house. And the first thought was, who left the door open? You're in, come on, stop doing that. Now, if the door is open in your house, tell me, what do you think? Okay. Don't go inside. For us, it was some, I mean, it really was. You left the door open again. I can't believe it. You know, boy, the AC is on. All that cool air is going outside. You know, I grew up in Florida, right? You're going to pay for that utility bill. <laughs> I mean, it's, it was things like that. But now the world is, oh, my. But here is Hezekiah. The prophet says, your people will be taken away. This is unwise what you have done. And he says, well, there'll be peace in my days. My, not good leadership. And then there's punishment as well in this passage. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your, that your fathers have laid up in the store to this day will be carried to Babylon. 
Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons will, um, who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. So punishment. Why? Because you have rejected me. Why? Because you have not trusted me. Why? Because you've trusted the gods of the lands. And why? Because for a moment, yes, their altars were torn down, but yet you rebuilt them again. There is punishment that's coming. But we can also say with God, it's a loving punishment, is it not? Number four is this. This passage is of historical significance. And um, beginning next week, I'll have to, there are a number of things we need to talk about as far as dates are concerned and, and theories are concerned, but not for now. But understand this in a big picture, there's this Syrian exile that we need to understand. There's the threat of Assyria, and as we're going to see, then there's a defeat of Assyria, and then ultimately, even in part, a salvation for Assyrians, because God is going to gather all people and nations to himself who will do what? Trust him. Then there's the rise of Babylon, which is very interesting, because now the Assyrians by Sennacherib has just put down a threat of Babylon, but yet Babylon will continue to rise and eventually will defeat the Assyrians. And then there's a threat of the Babylonians. And then the people of God will be taken to exile. But because of this true Messiah that's coming. And even before then, God would bring back his people to worship him. Here's a fifth consideration. And we just need to look through our texts a bit more on this. This is a passage with significant words, phrases, and theological concepts. It's, it is a goldmine as far as a narrative is concerned. And we want to work our way through them. Number one is obviously the word. What is that word? Trust. 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 You trust the Lord. Look with me at chapter 36. Notice what it says here. The rapture is speaking to the people of God. And he says here, beginning in verse 4, what is this confidence that you have? He speaks, it says, for Shennacherib, the great king of Assyria. What is this confidence that you have? Then in verse 5, now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? And then he says in verse 6, behold, you rely on Egypt, this sort of bruised reed that has no real power. Why do you rely, in verse 6, on Pharaoh? Then in verse 7, but if you say to me, that is, we trust in the Lord our God. And then in verse 9, it comes up again. Why do you rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And then in verse 15, trust again. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. So it's an indictment against God. It is a matter of trust. And in some ways, uh, the representative of Assyria, his um, advice is good. You shouldn't trust on Egypt and its chariots. You shouldn't trust them on for horsemen. You should trust in the Lord. Go with me to chapter 30. Look at chapter 30. This idea of trust is just throughout Isaiah. We also find it in 3710, because there, the God in whom you trust deceive you. Don't let God have you trust in him. He is no different than the gods of the land. And then in chapter 30, notice verse 15, because here is this 
pronouncement against uh, Judah because of their alliance with the Egyptians. Why have you um, relied on Egypt instead of against me? Here is your success. Notice if you want success, notice verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. Repent and rest. Not rest become passive, but repent and rest in me, you will be saved. And then he says, in quietness and in trust is your strength. Isn't that interesting? Quietness and trust. And what does he mean by that? I think what he means by quietness, don't make some pronouncement, don't negotiate, don't network, rely on me, and trust is your strength. But you were what? What does it say? If you look at verse 15, you are not what? Willing. You weren't willing. If you would just trust. How about this? The Holy One of Israel. Go back to Isaiah 37. The Holy One of Israel. So again, this morning, an overview of you can get these big ideas that we want to sink our teeth into over the weeks ahead. I want you to see it. This is one that is really pronounced through Isaiah, and we'll spend some time developing. And this is so important that we understand this. The Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. Notice 37:23, And what does God say? He has heard the prayer of Hezekiah, and he says in verse 23, Whom have, have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice? And haughtily lift up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel. Ultimately, any blaspheme, any indictment against the people of God is an indictment against God and is the Holy One of Israel. And remember, Isaiah chapter 6 What is the vision? Someone tell me, what is the vision that Isaiah has in chapter 6? He has a vision of whom? Yeah. And he is is what? What's that? On the throne. And what are they calling out? Oh, you must say it with more passion than that. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And here he is, the Holy One of Israel. And what we'll see in Isaiah, more pronounced than any other place in Scripture. The Holy One of Israel. Who is he? Surely he can be trusted. And what about prayer? Prayer in this book. Chapter 37. Not in this book, but in this passage. Chapter 37, verse 1. It doesn't say it, but he went to the house of the Lord. Why would he go to the house of the Lord? but to pray. Verse 4, therefore, they, Isaiah says, well, send for Isaiah and ask Isaiah to pray for us. And what's interesting, we never see Isaiah praying because in one sense, Isaiah has already given them the formula. And the formula is this. It's what I said back in chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, trust in the Lord. But they ask for prayer. And of course, in verse 14, what does Hezekiah do? He prays to the Lord. Then in verse 21, because you have prayed to me, God recognizes, yes, because you have prayed to me, this is what I will do to the king of Assyria. And now we have to wrestle with something when it comes to the whole issue of the sovereignty of God in prayer. Wait a minute, you've already said prophetically that you're going to do what? Defeat the Assyrians. But now the wording is saying, because you've prayed, I will do. 
So now we have this beautiful tension of even prayer and sovereignty unfolding right in front of us. So we see it in chapter 38 as well, chapter 2 and verses really 9 to 20, this great prayer of thanksgiving, thanksgiving that um, Hezekiah writes. But here's another one that we need to understand. And I think this is so relevant for our lives. I mean, fear. Fear. Now, some of you say, for instance, I, I'm just, I must, at least I surely hope. And I do think about this often because I, often I come to this campus and I say to myself, um, Lord, you have protected this campus. It's an open campus. So much can happen here. We hear about horror stories of what people have done in neighborhoods or in, or in malls or other places of what people say is their place of worship. And I think about this campus and I pray for it all the time. And I don't care how many security guards we have. They cannot, they are not what? Sovereign. They are not omnipresent. They're not all powerful. And I often pray, God, protect this campus. And I must be convinced that somehow that in some moment that someone showed up right here on this third floor that if you heard, and I don't want to trouble you with this. I don't want to make it sort of just a, a, an illustration for illustration's sake. But here is something for us to think about. If you heard gunfire. I'm hoping, though, that every man would play the man and you would run to the door. Amen? Now, that's my hope. That's my hope. Let me be the first one to stand in the gap. It's going to be me before my family. It's going to be me before my friends. It's going to be me before people I don't even know. Because there's some people on this side of the room that don't know people on that side of the room. Do you agree with that? <laughs> no, I've heard it before. They say, you go, you go to Anchored? Really? I've been there like three years. Well, we've only been going a year and a half, but you get the point. I've been there all the time. What? No, you don't. You don't go to Anchored. Yes, I do. But you would stand in the gap. And even if you had a fear, something in you would overcome the fear. That's the right thing to do. And fear comes in those situations we feel perhaps we're overwhelmed. And what does God say to the people of God? Do not say it. Fear. Do not be afraid. And this is what we find throughout Scripture, throughout so many times. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. And why? Because the opposite then is trust. The, yes, the, the antidote to fear is trust. It's trust. Don't trust the Egyptians. You see what your trust in the Assyrians have done? Don't trust in your ingenuity. Don't trust in your preparation. Don't trust in your armament. Trust in the Lord. Now, uh, let's pause for a moment. All of us can be like an Israel or a Hezekiah, and we have made some alliances with something else other than the Lord at times. What do I mean by that? We trust in our abilities. Anyone ever trust more in their abilities than they should? We trust in our education more than we should. 
We trust in friendships more than we should. We trust in our strength. Somehow, I'm going to conjure up the strength to get through this difficulty. And the Lord says, really? You're going to conjure up the strength? And at times, I believe God in his sovereign, wise, caring ways brings even more difficulty so that we might humble ourselves. Amen? Amen. I was home, and I was... um, my bad knee over here. I was, my sister was asking me about it, and she said, "Is it still bothering?" I says, "Yeah, I just went to the doctor, and he said, I, you know, I have moderate to extreme arthritis in it. It's just the way it is." And I said, "Look at this one knee." I said, "I can, I can sort of do it just like that, bring it all the way to here." And I said, "The other knee, that's about it." And she said, "Well, how often does it hurt?" I said, "Pretty much all the time." And she said, "Really?" And I said, yeah, I'm going to see someone. I heard about some maybe other things that they can do to help me out. But I said, here is the reality. And I stood there. She was there. Her husband was there. I'm about to leave to go to the airport just yesterday. And I said, "Uh, you know what? It's a reminder of my lack of trust. Because, see, I had a plan for my life. And God stepped down and said, no, that is not your plan. So I feel like it's, you remember Jacob when he wrestled with the Lord? And what was the end result of Jacob wrestling with the Lord? What, what did he do? He did what? Exactly. Popped his hip and it says the, the, the Israelites no longer eat the sinew because of what? Because his hip reminders. So out of recognition. So it was a reminder. And we don't quite know how Jacob walked. But because of it, yeah, it was a limp. <laughs> and so literally, I, I kid you not, I, I say it with all my heart, every time... I look at that knee, I shouldn't say every time, but most often I look at it and I say, Lord, I didn't trust you. It was my own strength, my own ingenuity. I will make a way. I will order the course of my life. And he says, no, you won't. And it was that. And then it was to order the course of my life. This is what I'm going to do. And he says, no, I'm going to, there's going to be an illness that you're going to have, and you're not going to be able to pursue that career. So he took that away, and he took that away. And so sometimes when we find ourselves, we are, uh, you know, creating good posture before God, and our chest is out before the Lord, if you will, and we may not intentionally be doing it to be proud, but ultimately we are. The Lord says, I will give you exactly what you need to do what? To humble you. Everyone in this room, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, at some point in time, you have found yourself in a situation where you're being prideful, and the Lord in his grace does what? Humbles you. Has anyone in this room ever been humble? Amen. Just how long ago, right? It was on the way to church, as a matter of fact. Now that you speak of it, God humbles us. To that, can you say Amen. Because then what is the result if he doesn't humble you, that is, you continue in your pride and perhaps even your destruction? So we should, be say, we should say, thank you, Lord, for humbling me. If it's a bum knee and if it's hip displacement or if it's simply where I am in life, you took this away from me, this opportunity is gone, thank you, Lord, that you do this in your kindness. Because then I see how I am not like Jesus Christ. Hezekiah was not the Emmanuel. 
there's but one. The gods of the land were not the true gods of the land. There is but one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one that we trust. There's some more points to make, but... All right, number six. But there's some sub-points under that. We'll come back to it. Yeah, of course there are, right? <laughs> This is a passage of God's glory. Because ultimately, we want to be a people who can glorify God. 37.20 says what? That they may know, that all the earth may know, that you are what? You are the Lord alone. Isaiah 40.15, it tells us what? It is so clear. Our verse 5, I'm sorry, 40 verse 5. It says that all the earth will be full of the what of God? The glory of God. You live for the glory of God. Did you not? And we'll begin next week to unfold more of this. Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy. Help us to trust you. And even as the scripture tells us, so plainly, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Give us grace. In Christ's name, amen.